0: Hello, OpStars. I'm Ashley, producer at the OpStars podcast. We hope you'll join us and the rest of the community at the seventh annual OpStars conference on September 21st and 22nd in San Francisco during Dreamforce. We've been virtual the last two years, but we are so excited to be back in person at the San Francisco Mint this year. Go to ops-stars.com to find out more about the speakers, sessions, and click on register now to join us. And by the way, it's free. I hope to see you there.
1: The teams were actually a centralized sort of living, breathing mechanism that focused on the customer and not their own individual departments. And that really is what turned me over to the concept that revenue operations was not just going to be a thing that we use to label system admins of the future, but more so a fundamental shift in paradigm.
0: Welcome to the OpStars Podcast. We host authentic conversations with revenue operations professionals running the show behind the scenes, holding things together, doing whatever it takes to innovate to solve problems, build processes, and manage the data to build a modern revenue engine that powers a great buyer experience. I'm your host, Rachel McBrarity. Welcome everyone to the OpStars podcast. I'm your host, Rachel McBrarity, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Jason Reichel. Welcome, Jason.
1: Hey, thank you for having me, Rachel.
0: Jason's chief revenue officer of Breadcrumbs.io. Breadcrumbs is a revenue acceleration platform based on co-dynamic lead scoring and routing engine living at the intersection of marketing and sales. He's also a board member and advisor to GoNimbly, a company he co-founded, and he's GoNimbly's revenue operations evangelist. You're a superhero for the operations community, Jason.
1: You know what trends made it when you have an evangelist title, right? So- Now RevOps is serious. I was the third person on LinkedIn to change my title to revenue operator. And I was the first person to change my title to revenue evangelist. So we will see if that trend kicks off now.
0: Well, certainly appreciate everything you're doing to be an advocate for the ops community. Tell us about your career journey and what you're doing at Breadcrumbs.
1: Sure. I think to understand why I would leave uh, Go Nimbly to work at Breadcrumbs, you have to understand sort of my career trajectory in general. I have a background in marketing and I worked in consulting for a long period of time being director of services for a company that was purchased by IBM and the Salesforce ecosystem. And, and during that time is really when I went from marketing to understanding sales and customer success and all the other you know operational parts of teams because I had to work on projects like implementing Salesforce or you know, CPQ or whatever. And this is way back in the day when you know Salesforce still had S triggers and other things like that. Actually, my history with Salesforce goes back even further than that. I worked at Rackspace, which was the largest server company in America at one point. And I worked on a secret project there called the Redundant Server Cluster. And my customer was Salesforce.com. They relabeled it the cloud, which is much more <laughs> uh, sexy than the Redundant Server Cluster. But it was a cool project nonetheless. And that kind of got me interested in you know B2B software in the cloud, what was going to happen in the future. I moved out to San Francisco. And started uh, the very first version of Go Nimbly was not actually a revenue operations consultancy. What it was, was a product development company. So I was really fascinated. I'm not a developer, but a business person and designer and marketer. But I was very really interested when Salesforce bought Heroku. It was a, a long time ago. And I thought, oh, cool. Apps can finally look like apps on the Salesforce ecosystem and not look like Salesforce stuff. And so I started a company that uh, with uh, my co-founder, Troy that built little applets and things like that using uh, Heroku and for Salesforce ecosystem. And that's where we really came into contact with the Zendesk's of the world and, and helped them with their projects and a slew of other things. And through that, uh, GoNimbly was acquired because we built an application for a Salesforce-owned, uh, invested company. And during that period, I transitioned from sort of being the head of an organization or, or business leader to being a head of product. And I took uh, about four and a half years in product. And my biggest product stint was I was the director of product uh, management for a company called TradeShift. And TradeShift is a very innovative company and they're a unicorn company now. And we were doing some very innovative work there. And I really love product management. I love products. I'm a huge tech nut, right? Like uh, like most people in Silicon Valley. But what I saw from all my background experience of actually running organizations, being in the business side of things is... Great products exist at Silicon Valley, but that doesn't mean that their operations on the revenue side were really great. And the sales team was very siloed. The marketing team, very siloed. The customer success team, very siloed. Product marketing, anything that touched the front-end customer, it seemed like they were all servicing. It might as well have been different individuals within the same customer, right? And their relationship was very fractured. Now, this is, wasn't a critique on trade shift at, at, by any means because they were a very well-run company. They also saw this problem. And that brought me to being like, I'm really passionate about product, but what if I took all the things I learned in product management and applied them to operations? And so I started going nimbly back up because I still own the name with Troy and and some other people. And we uh, very quickly moved, I think, three months into this term, unified operations, which gradually became revenue operations. And... I was kind of all in on that before I even knew the term RevOps existed. I mean, revenue operations has always existed, but it was more of a service of finance than it was a service of the whole operational stack. But I really uh, took to it and GoNimbly grew and our reputation grew. And uh, we've worked with some of the most innovative tech companies. Uh, I've done things with Lean Data before, right? And worked across the board and really helped transform those organizations. And what we saw by doing the work was not only a better working environment and people who are operationally focused being lifted up, but we also saw a dramatic change in in their value of their deals, the velocity of their deals. conversion rates. And it was all coming because the teams were actually a centralized sort of living, breathing mechanism that focused on the customer and not their own individual departments. And that really is what turned me over to the concept that revenue operations was not just going to be a thing that we use to label system admins of the future, but more so a fundamental shift in paradigm. Uh, Then came along, you know, Covid, which we're still in the midst of. Everyone keeps saying it's ending, but I don't know if that's true. And net new business dropped, and then suddenly, what became important to all businesses was growth and renewal. And then around that point in time, Go Nimbly was doing still. We're still doing well. Go Nimbly's still doing great. I'm still growing. Uh, and the new CEO, Jen, is one of my co founders. And you know, I think she's doing a great job over there. But I became very interested in can everything I learned actually be applied to a brand new company from zero? And so I went to work with Breadcrumbs and we raised uh, $7 million with the idea of actually tactically solving some of those gap points between the teams. And so Go Nimbly is very much, we do the work, but we're also kind of high level unifying the team. We do a lot of teamwork, we do a lot of like, Who should you hire and what's the makeup. But I actually wanted to know from a company that has nothing, no system admins, no tools at the start, no money, what it looked like to build revenue operations from the ground up as a CRO in the very beginning. And see what kind of uh, advantages that had, and then also what were the disadvantages? Did RevOps work at that scale? Right, that's a question I was constantly asked. So I took the role at Breadcrumbs really to challenge myself and to really understand. From you know, it's easy when you're Twilio or Zendesk to see these kind of amazing results that RevOps brings, but maybe it's not so easy when you are you know a five-person company, a ten-person company, a twenty-person company, um, and so that's been the journey that I'm on with Breadcrumbs. And what Breadcrumbs does is the next evolution to me of revenue operations, because it starts with unifying your team. Then it goes to filling in the gaps that your customers might have on your buying journey. And then it should go to personalization. And what Breadcrumbs really focuses on, and one thing that was constantly asked when I was a CEO of Go GoNimbly by tactical operators was, how do I actually manage my revenue operations? And the answer is, is you take ideas like lead scoring or other things, but you apply that across all of your workflows for product upsell or churn risk or all of these things. And you use scoring to pass off. And I, I hate hate that word, but I'll use it in this example, pass off to the right actor at the right time who can meet the customer where they're at. And so I think the next evolution of RevOps is personalization and meeting your customer where it's at. I think companies like Drift and other organizations have been correct about this. The thing, the critique I would give of Drift and other companies is what it ends up becoming is just sit there and wait for your customers to talk to you when when they're there. And you're talking to a lot of customers who are not qualified. It's kind of a big operational uplift. And so what Breadcrumbs aims to serve is touch the customer where they're at when they want with the right kind of tactic. And that's been a really interesting journey to, to be part of. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to uh, not have a dialogue for so long. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was packed full of good information. I do want to go back to something you said, which is at the heart of how you think comes out of product development and applying some of those principles as you think about the buying journey. What are the core things that you've translated as you start to think about revenue operations using some of the principles of product development?
1: Sure. So I think about this as maturity of an organization. So the first level of operational maturity, and when I say operations, just for the sake of clarity ten to anyone that's listening is I'm talking about revenue operations, meaning people who affect the front end of your go-to-market process, who talk to customers, right? The analogy I've always used is, Revenue operations is customer success, marketing, sales, all the people who you know shake the hands and kiss the babies. And then the operators behind the scenes, the rev operators, are the people who are the directors, are the boom mic operators, are the people who are making that, that experience work, right? And so the first level of that, always in every organization, which I very much suffered from my breadcrumbs too, is a very tactical version of operations, which is someone walks into a room and says, hey, the system isn't working or this process isn't working or we're not getting the results we want. Can you go fix it? And you have very little to do, but go fix that and you appease people. So it's a lot of appeasing, a lot of tactical work. Then the second layer is you start to decide like, we can't just do make changes in all of our systems and processes without any kind of scalability in mind. So then you start kind of bringing teams together and you start creating things like SLAs between marketing and sales and all these kind of more elaborate enterprisey uh, sort of processes and solutions. And then the third form of maturity is customer-based operations, which is, does our data or our what I call durability testing, which is taken from design thinking, which I used as a product manager, does that reflect back and say, our customers are experiencing this? Because who cares if in reality, the stills to marketing handoff is a little bumpy internally, but are our customers experiencing this? Are they seeing it? And then prioritizing all of your work on a roadmap, which is a product management thing on a roadmap that relates back to the gap that you found. From that your customers are experiencing. So then the question I get asked is, what's the second piece of that? How do you find the gaps? Well, that's really easy. There's two ways. One is data trends. So I created a method called 3VC, which measures volume, value, velocity, and conversion. And you look for where you're trending down over a six-month period, and that's kind of the operational benchmark for like, maybe there's a problem here. Like Maybe we should do some kind of operational process to lift this up. Or if you are being very proactive, you do durability testing, which can be as simple as sit down with 10 of your reps or sit down with your entire team and ask them the same questions and watch their behaviors and see where the the gaps are that are emerging naturally. And once you see that same pattern repeat itself multiple times, operationally prioritize that. So those are the two ways that you can kind of find that. And that's done directly from product management using in-product data and using customer interviews, right? As a way of of bridging the gap. And then the final thing is the way that you sort of put it all together is that you actually have to get attribution for operators. And this is a thing that I'm very passionate about that I'm speaking a lot about, which is I think revenue operations is going to go through exactly the same transformation that marketing went through, which was. Uh, Everyone throws money at marketing because they don't know what marketing works to marketing that works gets even more dollars, which meant more power to CMOs. And I think operators are, especially, you know, CROs and heads of revenue operation are going to get a lot more power if they can show that their work they're doing actually has an impact to the dollars and cents of the business. And so all of those things are taken from product management and really build my rev ops philosophy and tactically, They're very sound in the field as well, is what I found, right? It rewards experimentation, but doesn't allow your team to kind of go off and do whatever it wants. You still have to do tactical work because tactical work has very important impacts on conversion and other things, but also it allows you to deprioritize pet projects from your CEO that aren't actually going to move the needle because you're looking at data and saying, I don't see the problem where where you're trying to get us to do the work. And so it gives a lot of credibility and really leads to a, a seat at the table for revenue operators, which is kind of the goal of why I've been passionate about working in this space for so long.
0: Oh, excellent. As you're thinking about what you're doing at Breadcrumbs, as you're building this out and going through your own maturity, and testing and learning, are you at the point where you feel like you've identified those gaps and then you're working to improve them constantly?
1: I like to think that every, like, so we are post, Post seed, not at quite an A, right? And so we're 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 trying to get to those milestones. And what's nice about working in tech is, especially if you're going to be a VC uh, led organization, Go Nimbly was bootstrap. Uh, we're not doing that with breadcrumbs. Is that you kind of know what your next objective goal is, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that at every stage of that organization, you are a different company. And this is one of the reasons why Go Nimbly. RevOps works for everybody. Like I've talked to Coca-Cola about it. I've talked to NASDAQ about it. I've talked to everyone about RevOps and it works in all senses, but it works specifically well in tech because that company, if they're going to make it to IPO or selling 10 years down the road, is going to be eight or nine different kinds of companies in order to achieve those goals. And that's why GoNimbly particularly worked in the tech industry, right? Because we figured that would be, we could get one customer, but have eight tries at a, uh, figuring out the right RevOps formula. And so what I'll say is whatever I'm doing at Breadcrumbs today that's working won't work a year from now. And that is, to me, the challenge and excitement of working in revenue operations. It's it's very much a very tactile, visceral experience being in revenue operations, right? It shouldn't feel like report building grind. It should feel like solving real process problems. And for someone who loves design as much as I love and human interaction and human behavior, it's proven to be something that's infinitely fascinating. So I I would say that no, what was working now is not going to work, but the gaps that I'm experiencing now are all around and where the company's focused from my CRO's perspective is volume. You know, uh, when you're a new company, who nobody knows, you don't have brand identity yet, although breadcrumbs brand is is really evolving quickly and people are starting to recognize it. But thanks to we were in YC and some other things, it gave us some high profile, high profile analysis. And our product is very good. So those two things are working, but ultimately it's a in from a sales and marketing perspective, it's about how do we increase the, vol, the velocity and volume of our pipeline with the right ICP right? Because people don't know who we are. So they might see us on product Hunt or they might see us from YC, and they might come in and we're really focused on enterprise grade solution for companies that have dynamic and multiple functions that need to work together. And if you are, you know, a four person company, you could very much use uh, our tool, but it might not make the most sense for you. And so we're still dealing with that kind of identification segmentation as a primary gap that our customers are experiencing, because I hate the idea. That someone that is a 20-person company who is going to be a very great fit for us in the future. And I'm not talking about just from pricing, but I'm talking about from the tool actually being beneficial. Again, I care about that a lot as a product as a previous product person. I hate the idea that they would sign up for a demo because our website wasn't clear, that my sales rep would give them the demo, that they would sit through that, that they would be excited about the product only to find that the product can't really meet their expectations. And thus later, when they are a wildly successful company, they have a better taste in their mouth about us as an organization because we weren't clear about the gap that they were going to experience, right? And so this is something that I'm very focused on as a leader right now.
0: It sounds like foundationally... The focus is understanding that customer you're trying to reach and you can serve your ICP, building those journeys to support them. Even if you do end up shifting a little bit of that ICP as you learn or as your product develops, working back from the customer, that's your North Star.
1: Yeah, I always think it's quality revenue over quantity of revenue. I'd rather have a business that has less revenue, but is very secure in its quality and and servicing our customers. And this is learned through COVID, like... uh, a lot of the businesses that GoNimbly worked with that were not focused on quality of revenue, they suffered dramatically during COVID. And it was a mad scramble to just help them stabilize their business. Whereas the ones that were focused on quality of revenue and fit a product did very well during COVID. Maybe they didn't see the huge upswings, but they are now. And that was a very fundamental lesson learned about product market fit, as everyone talks about. But usually when everyone talks about product market fit, they're really talking about from, okay, what do I have to achieve to get the next round of funding that I need? Not stability of your business, not the quality of your revenue. So I would love to see many more revenue operators talk about how stable and quality is that revenue you have. Because it's very easy in the tech world to build a very awesome onboarding that gets someone in for a month. And maybe they won't churn But when their boss comes and says, hey, can we defend the cost of this? If that quality of revenue is not there, they're just going to churn out of your program and you're never going to get them back because they've made the decision they don't need you, which is worse than we can't afford you. And so this is something that I'm highly focused on about the quality of of our customers and what they think about our product.
0: The quality of the product experience, but also the quality of the interactions with the company. Because if you're going through an experience up front and it's not a great one, you make the assumption that's the kind of customer experience you're going to have. It's really both of those things, the interactions as you're going through the journey, and then also the product expectations.
1: In B2B, the interactions you have with the company have more to do with churn indicators than the product itself. Mm -hmm. Because in B2B, we have, and I don't think it's accurate from a product manager perspective, but I think that we have a tolerance for tools not working right away. Right? Like we have a tolerance that it might take us six months or a year to truly see value of a B2B enterprise software because it's so complex. And a lot of times we feel guilty because it's hard to plug into our system and we can't get people onto it. So we give it a break that you wouldn't give Dropbox if it didn't work for three months. But ultimately, you know, we, we give B2B software a break. And so what's really an indicator of churn are those customer gaps in that first year. I can look at most organizations and work through their operational processes and go, you have a pretty high uh, likelihood of churn after six months because of all of these gaps, and your product takes a year to recognize for the customer. So this is a big issue that you're going to run into, and this is a thing that has only become apparent since I've been in the day-to-day role of a CRO, especially working on what breadcrumbs solves, which is you know what goes where and what's and uh, how do you prioritize uh, real digital behaviors from just fire hose noise right and so this is something that i'm i'm coming to some kind of conclusion about some kind of theories about right now and it's very cool talking to you about this this is the first time i've really ever talked about this on a podcast about how i see these things as early churn indicators
0: what are the top 3 that you would recommend companies take a look at
1: i think that if you have a freemium model from the moment they click i would like to talk to sales to you getting in a hold of them and actually having a meeting The days and hours in between those two things are a huge churn indicator for me because this is, um, imagine just this, I think it's always helpful and I know we're both smart people and and understand our operation, but for other people who are still smart, you have to think about this as not business as usual because that's the business as usual. I click on the link, 48 hours, they send you a calendarly link, which is so shitty these days. Like, don't talk to me. Here's my link. Like, I understand why it's useful, but also it's not a great experience, right? And then you finally get on the call and then it's maybe not even with an A who can get you your contract or get you what you want. And you had a freemium model. So someone already says they really want to buy, right? So let's not only say how the way is to fix that in product, which is allowing people to buy when they want to. Maybe this is a process you have to have because your product needs integrations or implementations or, or some kind of thing. It's unavoidable. But, but the degrees in between those two things, the days and hours are a huge indicator on how the customer is. Imagine you went to a restaurant and you ordered at the counter, and then you had to wait for two hours to get your food. Imagine what that experience would feel like and how excited you would be about telling your friends about the place, no matter what the quality of the food is, right? There is nothing that they could do that would fix that gap. And this is a true thing. I've been trying to buy a piece of software, which I won't mention. It's a very quality piece of software. And I have literally asked to talk to a sales rep 10 times, got on the phone with someone once, and they never sent me my contract back, right? And all I have to keep doing is saying, talk to sales, and I can keep extending my trial for an indefinite amount of time. And now I'm worried about the credibility of this organization, even though I fundamentally love their tool. Right. So that's one really big place where I think thing is. Two, I think that outbound really needs to change. And I think the way that we sort of accost business leaders and decision makers doesn't work. And just because you can eke out a couple customers in that way. The amount of people that you turn off is significant. So how do you actually grow as a business becomes the question, right? And for that, I think you have to look at upsell and uh, renewal and other things like product-led growth and and other things to, to really grow these days. But that's the second one is, how many emails did I have to bombard this person with before they responded to me? And then I'm excited that I got them onto a demo with my person. And even if they buy, the thing I tell everyone, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit, so hopefully the audiences can handle this, is that we're not in the age of a customer making a decision anymore. A customer wants to buy your product because they want to buy your product. What we're in the age of is how happy are they? Are they going to tell their friends? Are they going to take the, the political risk of taking your product across the entire organization? Or are they just going to use it because they need it for their specific means and not put anything out there? And the third thing that I think is really, really important is the credibility between each of your resources looking like it's a team built for the customer versus just being handed off between those people. So on the, the kickoff call? Is the first person they talk to on that call? Is the sales rep on that call or the AE? Is the implementation manager on that call? If those three people are on that call, and, and I can guarantee you, it's going to have percentage increases on the likelihood that they're going to churn, right? And so these kind of three very simple tactical things are what I can go into an organization and look, and there's, there's a lot more looking at actual data, but those are three that are fundamentally objectively gaps that you need to close, right? And then the rest of them kind of come down to your business, right? Uh, if you uh, go uh, breadcrumbs, because we look at, you know, work streams and workflows, it might take two to three months for you to have them all completely implemented. And you might have in that time, that gap to product value uh, realization might cause you to be like, ah, I don't know if this is really valuable. So we've done things to speed that up and move it in the, in the forward part of the process operationally. Now, it still takes three months for them to see final results, but they see immediate results by things like the quality of their data, feedback and analytics on their different operational workflows, things that other tools don't give them, right? So even though they won't see the product's benefit for two to three months, they're seeing information that's insightful from day one. And this is in product, but also we did this manually in an operational process before it was ever built into our product, right? And so that's kind of the core of my belief is, you know, you can do a lot with humans and you can show value and and close these gaps. And then you can create permanent solutions behind the scenes as you scale, right?
0: I like what you're saying about the three different areas. What I'm hearing in those are two key things that you need to take a look at in those touch points and processes. One is time to response and speed is super important. Well, the right timing is important. It's got to be a good timing. And then the second is the quality, the right content, having the right people so that you can shorten those cycles with the customer. And I think at the heart of this is we've seen this stat out there. 79% of buyers have already gone through the whole decision-making process before they come to you. That's the reality of today. And that's, I think, essentially what you've outlined is you need to respond to them based on the fact that they probably want to buy from you and don't make that even more painful. They're knocking on your door. So, hey, get to them right away. Don't make them wait. Makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah. And then secondarily, and reason why breadcrumbs has to exist is that 79%, it's how do you separate them from the 300% that you're getting in your inbound flow, right? So that's where technology can really enable and understand programmatically how we find that 79% and how do we treat them the way they need to be treated. Mm-hmm. And how do we do an education campaign to the ones who are not quite where they need to be, or maybe they think they want to buy the product, but the product is not right for them. Right. This is another thing where, again, going back to the very first thing I said that, that I'm very passionate about, which is ICP, all the things that SaaS companies believed in to grow. Like, like you just mentioned once that like, Oh, if, if someone's on your website and you call them within four minutes or something, you have a likelihood of connecting with them and you could talk to them about your deal. This is great for a SaaS company, but when they really analyze it and look at the customers, they need to look at, okay, so we manipulated a customer into signing up for us. That's good. But what is that quality? And I, I really hope, and I keep talking about this very uh, specifically, but I want to, and, and this is a project that I'm just working on in my own brain, is create a a algorithm or something that tells people the quality or predictability of that revenue and that customer, right? Just because as a SaaS company, we scooped them up doesn't mean that we don't need to continue to work on them in the CS fold or work on them with upsell cross-sell being a functional operational work, right? Like uh, getting them to where we need to be to increase their their likelihood. I, I think that instead of focusing on churn reduction risks, we should be looking at how much quality is this dollar that I'm getting from this customer? How much of it is, are they willing, like how much of it are they excited to hand over to me versus how much are they handing over because that's the cost of my product or because, you know, holy grail of all uh, product marketing is uh, what's the loop? Like what's the, I'm talking about a lot of stuff in in a negative way. And like, I don't want to piss people off, but like, what is the way that we manipulate someone into staying with us, right? Until we can show the value. These are all the secrets of our trade that we all talk about and know. But I think that revenue operations should be about knowing that these things exist and then filling in the gaps of these really business-driven decisions and things we do in tech, make them legitimate and actually work on behalf of the customer.
0: So your role as a CRO is thinking holistically about this life cycle, taking them on that journey. Revenue comes from your customers, doesn't come from tweaking your internal operational processes unless they're in service of making those customers successful along the journey. At the heart of driving revenue is really getting customers to stay and buy more. Um, Revenue comes from your customers. It doesn't come from tweaking your internal operational processes unless they're in service of making those customers successful, right? Along the journey.
1: Yeah, efficient. When people talk about efficiency gains in their processes, I think I always have this kind of mental image that they don't understand their customers. Because the best organizations can be fat with blow and have shitty operational processes because their customers are so willing to hand over the money. Now, what can we do in the operational processes, right? That adds to that, not makes things more effective so that we're a humming machine. Because it's so weird to me that's what people in tech and startups and, and you know, enterprise grade hire for when that company keeps changing so dynamically that on all honesty, your processes are. Not that important because they're going to dramatically shift from one year ago to two years from now. So all you can actually do is increase the the operational workflows that are having dynamic impact on your business and creating revenue, right? And that's where I think CROs of tomorrow. When I'm you know talking to some of my my friends and we're, we're sitting around and talking, this is a thing I'm also passionate about, which is. It's not about streamlining. Streamlining is, we're not Microsoft. Like most of us are not Microsoft. Most of us are not, you know, Facebook. Those companies might need to f- figure out efficiency in order to get the returns. Most of us are in a mad scramble to get as much market share in a category that is blowing up or is or is maturing. And we need to scramble against that and then protect it by having impactful operational processes, which is very, very different to me than... I want to save a sales rep 10 minutes on this form fill out they have to do. I don't, as a CRO and I, I, and I tell my team this and they know this about me, I don't care about individual reps. I don't care about individual reps. I don't care about individual emails. I don't care about anything individually. My whole thing is what does this look like in the grand scale of things? I hire specialists or very specific people to care about the individual tactical things that we need to get done. And that's not because I don't think tactical is important. It's because, if one email that you send out breaks your entire operational process, and that was a shitty operational process in the first place, right? And this is the kind of thing that I think that most of us need to be a little bit more honest about. And, you know, I've been a big proponent for a long time that a lot of KPIs that we measure ourselves off with are just vanity metrics. They don't actually do anything. MQ how many MQLs did you create last year or last month? What does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. Right? What do how many SQL handoffs do you have? It doesn't mean anything. These are just indicators that people want to put into updates that they send out to, you know, their, their investors or that they want to look good in the quarterly review with their company or they want to, you know, feel good about their traction. The only thing that matters is revenue and then the quality of that revenue. I didn't know I was so passionate about this. Thank you, Rachel.
0: No, I love it. And I think you've painted an amazing picture of where things are going in the future. Our listeners are typically managers in marketing ops or sales ops or customer ops. What advice might you have for them, especially if maybe they're in a company that hasn't started to move to revenue operations? Is there something they can do to get started to get the company thinking about the customer, thinking about the gap? Can they do that from a grassroots perspective?
1: Hundred percent. I mean, honestly, it's like a market. It's like being a marketer or a CMO and a, with the CEO who doesn't believe in marketing. I would say you probably need to get the hell out of there if your company is very against it. But if your company's not against it against the idea of revenue operations, if your CRO doesn't think, oh, that's just some bullshit marketing thing on LinkedIn, but it actually understands the concept, but your organization maybe is 10 years old and they don't have that system and they've had all these processes that have been built out and your job is to manage those processes. I think the first thing you start with is I'm going to start to contribute attribution to my work. And, and by what I mean by that is what operational lever... Again, volume, value, velocity, and conversion. What are these four things am I hoping to maneuver? If you're in marketing, it's usually velocity or value or volume, because you really don't have anything to do with conversion unless you give yourself a conversion metric. Like I want to see a certain amount of my leads go to, you know, the sales team and them to work, but focus on that. And when you're doing your operational work, present it as here is where the gap is. Here's what my rate is. Like we have a 10% conversion of uh, webinars to bookings. I want to, I'm going to do this work. And then over a period of time, represent that back to your businesses. It's now gone to 14 or 15% because we did this operational work. Now it's not causation because we're still in, in revops. to be honest, we're still in the place of correlation, but it is better and more focused on results than 95% of your peers. And then once you start doing that, they'll start to ask other teams to do that or other operators to do that. And when more operators are doing that, then you start to actually see how these things can compound. And then kind of a unified team starts to emerge on its own, because this is a process. I've always told people that the most organized person in the room wins. And by what I mean by that is, if you show up and you show an executive some kind of data, and you say you've changed this, and then the next person shows up and they don't do that, that's going to become a mandate that that needs to happen in the way that you present your work. And it becomes sticking. It's one of the, in my opinions, keys to success that you know I put into the foundation of Go Nimbly and that the teams really carried on. Which is, it's not just enough to check a box off and say we've got it done. That makes us look and makes operations look like a support mechanism, like we got a ticket, we crossed it off. Instead, of saying this is how we think this work is going to impact our overall uh, results, and then following up, and even saying it didn't change this, but we we had a change in volume or we had a change in value, that's a domino effect of what we're doing. That is still very, very powerful. And so if you can talk that way, and I think the organizations will organically kind of come to the idea of revenue operations being important, because I think the core of revenue operations is do work that's impactful. And if that and if that company never gets there, it's going to help your portfolio and help you understand how to talk in an interview to actually get a real rev ops job with a company that believes in it.
0: That's perfect. Thinking about the outcome you might be able to impact if you are in a MOPS role, where typically you might think about MQLs. Instead, think about how does it get actioned? And that's the gap. How is sales actioning those MQLs? Yes, it's great to count your MQLs. It certainly is an indicator of how you're doing. However, to move toward a RevOps mindset, it's about making sure to move that customer over that gap that those customers are followed up on.
1: Absolutely. And I'm not talking maybe at the individual CS rep level, like I'm talking about an operator who's- Manager level. Yeah. 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 Because I think it's hard when you are face-to-face and this is why, you know, uh, you can't really fault salespeople who have bad processes that, you know, go back to what was working for them. Because their job is to be very personal and one-on-one with the person and looking at them in the eye. So I don't know how many times in my work, even in breadcrumbs, like I'm just you know, opening the, the thing where we've changed our speaking strategy about who we're talking to and why the product is valuable. And then you know my head of sales doesn't adopt that, even though he understands why we would do that because he has a very personal relationship with the person on the line. And they're talking to him about a very specific use case because all of our marketing and all of the brand awareness we were doing speaks to that. And then you know we have you know being completely transparent our CEO being like why are we not making this transition faster well it's because we there's other things up market that are making this really personal interaction stressful and uncomfortable and i think that when we look at our our front end people that way when we look at the cs person who Tells you know your customer. I'm really sorry you're having a product with a problem with our product, which is like a golden sin to say I'm sorry in SaaS to someone when when something's not working for them. It's and have no empathy for the fact that they have a very one-on-one personal relationship, or a lot of CS people in CS become to begin become burnt out about the product because all they're hearing is the negative stuff that's not working. Whereas if you brought them into the front end implementation process, they're hearing how excited customers are to get started and they're seeing the value of the product, right? And so then when they're dealing with some of the customers, they understand that's a few of the customers. Or when you show them, hey, as an operator, which is one of my favorite CS dashboards to create, here's all the customers we have who didn't have problems this month. And here is the small, small 4%, 3% of customers that you guys actually dealt with. So that they know, hey, the product is taking care of it, and when they see that number shift just a little bit, they start to feel like they're part of a more broad, dynamic team. So it's these kind of things where you have to understand the pressures that individuals are under at the same time as what's that whole psychological uh, through line, that behavioral through line. That and, and this is where you know, like, like a lot of design thinking principles come in, and and other things that that I've really learned. And that I mean, operators are getting very savvy about. If you read about stuff on uh, LinkedIn, I, one of my favorite posts this week was about a guy who's. How do you measure the success of your revenue ops team? And he was just talking about ideas he had, and just the ideas he was having were part psychological, which I always tell people that a rev ops job, a rev operator's job, is a little bit like a therapist because you got to figure out and deal with a lot of people's personalities to get through it. A really highly technical and operationally business sound and. That makes revenue operators in a business critical to the success of it. And I think more and more people are being turned on to it. And that's super exciting for me.
0: Great. Our ops folks, they can kind of look at the forest for the trees, understand what's driving the business and put together those metrics. I love the example of the CST might be dealing with all of those escalations or unhappy customers, but to present back to them, give them the bigger picture is a great way for for ops to connect in with their internal stakeholders. Even if they're in the trenches and dealing with the issues, they then have a perspective that they can actually have a positive impact on the business. That feels so much better. You can see that if you do handle the challenges well, some of those customers become very, very loyal. As an individual operator, you're right. If you don't see those patterns, if the ops operations um, team isn't bringing those to the forefront, you don't know if what you're doing as an individual in with that customer is working. So I really like that idea.
1: I'm I I love that you mentioned that because there's like that thing that said a customer who has one support issue or two support issues in the first six months tends to be a customer for two or three X the duration of the ones who didn't because they interacted with your operations. I mean, I think that's a very operational Uh, CX uses that as a value of CX, right? But in reality, I think it's actually a operational stat, which is interacting with the people who build the things that we interact by can have a huge impact on our cognitive bias towards that product or company, right? And if that's true, then the reverse is true as well, right? And so that's really uh, interesting to me. You know, I love that stat because it's a positive one, but it means all the places. It just validates the gap first thinking methodology, right? Which is all those gaps that you don't even know about today are affecting your customer.
0: When you're on the front line, you're kind of going in your gut. You're going based on your past experience. If you don't have the data and insights to know the patterns, super important that we weave in and, and present those that data and information into the teams because it does give them the perspective. And then you make much better decisions that are more rational and based on on the facts of what you need to lean into and what you need to do. Because otherwise, there comes a point where gut feel does not get you there.
1: I mean, I think that gut feel is an amazing thing, but that's a hypothesis, right? right. What you need to then go do is uh, how you feel should not change how an entire organization of people Act. If your gut is right, you'll be able to find the data or do the durability test that validates uh, what you assume. This is not again science. Operating a business is an art form, but the more that we can validate our assumptions, the more credibility that brings us, the more trust it takes across the team. You know, I've seen so many operators who are hundred percent right who go and destroy the relationships that they have with across the organization because being right is more important than getting people on, onto the team, mm. right? And I think being right is very critical to a business. Like if you make too many wrong decisions, I think that you'll, you'll build a lot of processes that are really hard to undo. But it's very easy with data and other things and you know, telling your CEO, hey, I interviewed 10 reps, they all are having this problem. That no matter how the CEO feels about it, they would be the biggest asshole in the world to ignore that, right? <laughs> and if again, I really believe if that's who you're interacting with, get a new job. Like uh, we're in this age where there's a lot of new jobs popping up, get a new job. And if you can't get a new job, I'm very sorry for you. And hopefully we can fix this in this industry by making revenue operations more and more of a thing. So there's even more opportunity for people to move into these more thoughtful operational roles that I think some of our businesses and some of our, some tech companies and other companies are starting to recognize as being very valuable, right? And so I would say, be patient if you're in that position, but ultimately- There's no way this doesn't... I'd be very surprised if this just peters out. Like I'd be very surprised if we don't see a a very transformational thing happen to businesses in the next five years. We're already seeing it, right? But but again, I'm in a bubble, right? I live in Silicon Valley. I work uh, with very innovative companies who are looking for whatever ways they can to increase their revenue and and their quality of their revenue. But again, I've had very real conversations with banks in Ohio, thinking about how they can be more... Customer centric. You see this all over in tech and consulting. They'll say, oh, in Salesforce kind of populations, I'm customer obsessed. Okay, that's great. But how do we actually implement that? That's revenue operations to me, right? And so I think more and more organizations are going to see this and it's going to be a thing that GE has, you know, or they might already have. Like I've talked to them before about this. So it's kind of a, a crazy wild, wild west right now, which is becoming, you know, uh, territories and mindset and and different things, you know, there's half of our ops people who believe that technology is the most important thing. I believe that journalism is the most important thing. Uh, there's another set that believes, that, you know, da- data scientists. I don't think any of these people are wrong or 100% right. I don't believe I'm 100% right about what this is going to be, right? But I do think um, taking a more designed approach to it and an iterative approach and using data and, and foundational things like product management background things allows you to be wrong and not have it wreck everything. And so that's another thing that I would really focus on the people who are listening to this, which is you're not going to be right. This is not a silver bullet, but what we hope to do is build a scaffolding that is strong enough that if you follow those three steps that I mentioned in the very beginning of this podcast, what happens is something comes at you that you can't handle and it rips a hole in your little net. And I call this your baseline net. And then you're able to adjust your processes to fix that, right? And so then as your business grows, it becomes exciting to see the challenges that you face and, and your processes can withstand and exciting to see the ones that break it right and that you have to go fix and that's such a more dynamic working environment and exciting environment than being a salesforce admin or a marketo expert or you know a strategist even so you know that's i just feel very positive about where everything's going and you know i think in the last month there's been like five or six more RevOps podcasts that have shown up on the radar and I don't view that as competitive. I view that as a, a sign that things are headed in the right direction.
0: No, 100%. And I hope that you'll come back on in maybe six months or a year from now. I'm fascinated with your journey, this step that you've made to go, you know what, I'm going to go build this out so that I can continue to have that deep understanding and expertise, build this engine in the way that I see as the future of RevOps. I really admire that. It's really cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, watch in a month or six months I'll come on and I'll be like, I was wrong about everything. I uh, would be honest and transparent about that too. I don't, it's fine.
0: Yeah, but that's what I love about you is you're okay with trying and not everything's going to work. Yeah. You know, that's how you're going to figure it out. You're going to figure it out for the customers that you're serving. You are on a mission to define what is this model that's going to really help to drive those improved buying experiences. Thank you very I much. Have, can I ask you two final questions that I absolutely everybody? What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out in revenue ops or in an operations
1: role? Find a mentor. Find a mentor in another company or even in your company. And I have very specific views on mentorship. Uh, I'm very lucky that I had very great mentors. But I always realized that my job in the mentor-mentee relationship was also to be of use. So I would say, don't just blanket email people if you don't have any idea of how you can be of some assistance to them. You know, I've I've had people say, hey, can you give me RevOps coaching if I help you with, you know, your social media or something? I much prefer that, right? That's a uh, valid trade and uh, will help them. So if you're really starting out and say you're not even in tech and you're just graduating college or something and you want to get into operations, how do I do it? Find a mentor. I find that most people in tech companies are very willing to help out other people, especially when they're starting out their career and they're eager and, and they're excited. That's kind of the one advice I would give to someone that's just starting out. The other one would be what we talked about earlier, which is bring results to the table, have hypotheses, and approach things in an organized fashion.
0: Perfect. And final question, who in the world of operations would you most like to take to lunch?
1: I mean, you're here. Uh, no, but uh, I think uh, two people that I really admire,
0: I am Sean Lane from Drift.
1: He's very solid operator, um, has some different opinions than I have about certain things. But I've been on his podcast multiple times and always enjoy talking to him. And then Patrick Campbell from ProfitWell is just super innovative CEO and is really doing a lot for both revenue operations and you know pricing comparison and things that he talks about a lot in a very novel way. And I don't think people like him and he's well respected but i don't think that he gets enough credit for taking two dry ass things like revenue operations and pricing comparisons and making them exciting and fun and 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 make people who deal with that shit every day feel excited to be part of that that's a big thing for me as like i want to be around people who are exciting i grew up playing music and rock and roll and and touring and bands and stuff. And now I'm in a business. And if I just felt like I was a business person, that probably wouldn't be very fun. So I really like making this as exciting and dynamic as it possibly can be. And I think Patrick is a living example of uh, of a CEO who does that.
0: Well I think that mindset alone was going to have a huge impact on the world of operations. This notion that we can transform folks in operations, moving from trying to perfect processes to being revenue creators is super exciting. And I love the passion you're bringing. So thank you so much for sharing. i really appreciate it.
1: Look at that. I waved too early. That's so, I'll wave now. Thank you so much, Rachel. I appreciate it. Thanks,
0: Jason. Take care. (laughs) Bye. Bye. The Opstars podcast is brought to you by Lean Data. To find out more about us and our suite of Salesforce native products for marketing, sales, and revenue operations, head to leandata.com. And then make sure to search for OpStars in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at OpStars and Lean Data, thanks for listening.